of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 36 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and while I'm not sure what week of quarantine it is exactly, I do know that most of us are at the point where we're contemplating giving ourselves our own haircuts. I'm holding strong. I've got no one to impress, and I would strongly encourage you all to do the same. Now, A lot has been made of the Spanish flu pandemic in the earlier part of the 20th century when we're trying to provide some reference point to what we're going through today. But there was another far more deadly plague that has even greater historical parallels with our current situation than that one. I, of course, am talking about the Black Death. The Kleenex of pandemics that killed anywhere from 30 to 50% of the population of Europe, depending on who you talk to, but also brought about enormous economic and social change. Now, why, with such a large death toll, do I say it's of greater historical relevance than the Spanish flu? Well, both the Black Death and the coronavirus are the result of expanding foreign trade, specifically with Asia. Although the folks in medieval Europe didn't insist on calling it the Asian death, but that's more because it was easier to blame the local Jewish population. The more things change, right? Now, to help add some context, I've enlisted the help of Louisa Woodville, now retired professor of medieval and Renaissance art history at George Washington University, to discuss life during the Black Death and the cultural and economic changes that ensued. I'll be back at the end with closing comments, until then, Louisa Woodville. If you can kind of paint the picture for me, like, because a lot of people, I think, when we think of the 1300s, we sort of have this image of like some scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where you've got people kind of rolling around in the mud and such, but that's not right. an accurate right. picture, correct? We, correct. As a medievalist, of course, we're always railing against that. This <laughs> idea of, of people you know, eating, eating with their hands and gobbling up. I mean, I love Monty Python. I think he's hysterical, but this was also the era of pilgrimages. These Mm -hmm. people walked and rode and, and did whatever they could to visit these sacred, what they considered sacred uh, uh, relics. And there were many reasons for traveling to do that. You could say, well, I want a safe childbirth for my wife. So I'll go to Canterbury also, it's a way to get off the farm. I mean, these people love to travel. They love going to Santiago de Compostela, and they love going to Rome. So, and even Jerusalem for some of them who could afford to. So, this was not the backwards age. These were very sophisticated people. Uh, you have, of course, before the Black Death, you have the Crusades, and the Crusades. When you think about it, think about transporting all those horses and all those armies and all those men from places in France and England all the way to Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Yeah. They had a huge technological advances and things like shipping 
and in transportation. And uh, the Templars, which were a group of warrior monks, figured out how to do letters of credit. So you could pick up, you could pick up your money when you arrived in the Holy Land. So yeah, yeah, I think it's a sophisticated time. Yeah, yeah, it's not a bunch of people kind of hiding out in the dark, afraid of witches and such, which which I think is generally the the, the popular image. Um, well, I think that's the image that is accurate a little bit now as then. You, yeah. you always sort of want to fall back on trying to find someone to blame something on. And unfortunately, in this period that we're talking about, the Jews were often a target. Uh, well, what we can talk about that more later. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, I know you know if we if we kind of set the stage, then so the the 1300s, it's this it's sort of part of the the commercial revolution, part of this period of time where uh, there is a lot of commerce, a lot of people traveling, a lot of people trading uh, far away, and so the plague kind of almost starts to spread as a result of that. Is that correct? That's exactly right. That's how it did uh, end up spreading because of they had these very uh, lively and vibrant trade routes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, what happened was it, it started, I think when the Mongols attacked some Genoese merchants and then they were, they carried this disease back to Genoa and it, it just exploded from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as this starts to spread, you know, kind of getting back to something you mentioned, which is, you know, we're always looking for somebody to blame. Like, what was the, what were the initial reactions of people and what were the initial reactions of government as the plague started to make its way through Europe? Well, if you look on that sheet that I, I printed out about the number of plagues in history, yeah, this wasn't something surprising. It wasn't like, oh, what, what, what this is. These people had, had plagues before. Mm-hmm. So they, they were familiar with them. They weren't ready for such a plague to hit that hard and that fast. Mm. And if you read the primary documentation, for example, there's a Carmelite friar, Jean de Venette, and he writes about how people lay ill little more than two or three days and died suddenly. Mm. He who was well one day was dead the next and being carried to his grave. So this is a plague that you could be alive at 9 a.m. and dead by 6 p.m. Okay. So, so the, the big difference then wasn't necessarily the illness. They had seen sort of mass disease before, but it was the length of time it took for you to actually pass from it. Is that right? Yes. And also, they, this was also an era of, unfortunately, a famine. And famine is a lot slower. Uh, this kind of devastating death knoll was something that I think was newer to them because I, I, I don't think the other plagues struck as hard and as viciously as this Black Death did. Okay. And, and was it the famine then that aggravated that? No, I don't think the famine aggravated it. I think that they brought this uh, plague in from um, from the east, mm-hmm. and it just it felled everybody. So the famine wasn't as big of a part of it, but it probably didn't help too much. Then is that right? No, it didn't help too much. And mm. the, I mean, the 14th century was just such uh, an explosive 
uh, era with a lot of good things happening, a lot of bad things happening. So, yeah. Why, why is that? Like, why was it, you know, why was it such a dynamic era? Well, you look at what happened before you have the crusades Mm -hmm. and the crusades were really great. And and that was more the 1200s and 1100s, but you look at that era and people are traveling. They're seeing places that they've never seen. They're uh, being, becoming culturally enriched and it's easier to travel because it's a, um, financially better off era than previous ones. Yeah. So it's, it's not so much that this was bound to happen. It's just that people were moving around a lot more. Yeah. And when people move around a lot more, I, I look at our own history and history of the native Americans. Mm-hmm. They were hit by disease. Yeah. And that was as ferocious. And I'm surprised that that's not included on this list because that was, as horrendous as any black death. Yeah, well, that I, I remember hearing an estimate that something like ninety percent of the population of North America had died. Human population of North America had died of disease by the time uh, colonists started to arrive, and it was sort of that first yeah. seed planted by the conquistadors in you know South America and Mexico that just fed its way all through the continent. Um, yeah, and. And, you know, I think, again, this is probably a conversation for another day, but I think part of the reason why we think of the United States as this vast open uh, frontier uh, is is because any of the existing structures that existed in terms of trade and infrastructure and whatnot was just wiped out. Yes, and it, this, that is very true. The other thing about the Native Americans is they did not have the horse, mm-hmm. so their trade routes weren't as vibrant as ours were in Europe because they didn't have the means by which to transport uh, goods as easily as they did in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing I find really interesting about kind of like the, the black death and comparing it to now is if you look at the current situation, if you look at the coronavirus and the, the spread of that and the fact that I'm sitting in my house with, five children, uh, tr- attempting to homeschool them, not well, but attempting, uh, you know, it, it's really a, a result in a way or a byproduct of globalization. You know, the fact that some food market in China can ultimately produce a pathogen that keeps me locked in my house is really the result of this explosion in trade. And it sounds like the, the Black Death was very much the same sort of thing. Which is amazing. Yes, because this particular bacterium did travel from China, then it went to the Caspian Sea, and that's where these Mongols ruled, and they were they are the ones who attacked these Italian merchants. So they attacked these Italian merchants in 1346 mm-hmm. in the Crimea, and by 1348, this devastating pestilence has infiltrated Europe. And what amazes me is that the primary documentation we have, mm-hmm. it's all over the place. It's, it's Italian. It's English. It's, uh, for example, the British Library has a wonderful chronicle of the Black Death. And this, it was, it's in a cathedral priory. And it talks about how nobody could do the work mm-hmm. that these laborers had done because they they had never learned how to do it. So you have agricultural workers 
are needed. And the churchmen don't know how to knead bread. They, they don't know a lot of this stuff. So they have to figure out how to thresh their own corn and, and plow the land and uh, make their own bread. So that's a little bit of a, a, a difference now is that we don't have that social hierarchy. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. yesterday I mentioned that in Italy, when the plague swept through, you would have people who would, uh, their neighbors would die, and there'd be all this land lying fallow. The people to work the land were dying. So wages went up, and land value went down. And if if you could claim that land and somehow uh, farm it, you were, uh, you, you had a social edge that you wouldn't, that wouldn't have been available to you previously. Yeah, that's, well, that was a fascinating thing. I was actually in, in doing some research for this. I saw a chart that looked at GDP per head uh, during the Black Death. And that actually goes up. Total GDP, you know, total, total sort of economic production goes down because obviously there are fewer people. But, but like yeah. you said, it, seem, it seems like in a weird way, the standard of living for the survivors kind of is rising. Is that right? Yes. I think that's if you're looking at it in totally economic terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, other, but what I, yeah the other fascinating thing I, I find is that I, at the time, if you remember, the Pope is no longer in Rome. He has moved to Avignon mm-hmm. as the French, or France is beginning, beginning to becoming sort of a state. And uh, anyway, people are confused about this whole papal dislocation then we have this pestilence come roaring through and the people pray as they have been taught to do uh you know to a saint or to the virgin mary and uh is nothing really happened their good good neighbor on the right dies their bad neighbor who they hate who's a really horrible person lives and so they're trying to figure this out. And so the church begins to lose its foothold a little bit because people are saying, I, I, I'm not believing you. It mm. doesn't seem to be uh, working for me, this, this praying to a God who just took away my wife and my five children. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know, tell me if I'm oversimplifying it, but it seems like the medieval perspective of, of God uh, was almost like at, at one point it was almost like this metaphysical vending machine that sort of rewarded good deeds with good outcomes. And it sounds like that starts to change as people see people die irrespective of their level of piety or, or, or the, you know, how they live their lives effectively. Am I, am I right there? Yeah. 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 I, I see what you're saying. I, I, I think sometimes what people forget is that there was always this element of, uh, I guess you would call it disruption within the Christian church. For example, in the 1200s, you had the Cathars in Southern France, the Albigensian mm-hmm. crusade, and these were Christians that had a different belief system and they were basically massacred by the French nobility in the North who were trying to, affect a land grab. Mm-hmm. So you have this quote-unquote religious war. It's not religious at all. It's all greed. Uh, so who writes history? 
the the people who want to get across their own agenda. So I think there was a lot more um, questioning of the Christian faith than we give these people credit for. And sure. you can see it in the Albigensians, and you can see it in um, different parts. And, you know, you look how different the Orthodox Christianity is from the Roman Orthodoxy. So mm-hmm. there's just one example. And that happened in the 11th century. So Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to kind of parallel that with now, too, because there's there's been... I think an increasing suspicion uh, of official institutions uh, over the last couple decades that probably hasn't existed since maybe like the Vietnam era. And, uh, and there is this suspicion of government, suspicion of media. And what, well, what a- yes, when you can catch the lie so easily, Oh, we've got mm-hmm. this under control. Oh, okay. And think, Oh, good. Phew. And then you, you realize that, uh, New York is out of ventilators or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's so it's so much easier to catch the lies nowadays with it, the it, internet. Yeah, there's more. There's definitely more transparency, and I think you know if we if we kind of look to the future. Uh, the the folks who are are kind of purporting the everything's fine or this is overblown narrative are obviously going to have to either rewrite history or uh, or or eat some humble pie. Um, right. Y- you know, a little hard that, to rewrite history these days. They tell me about it, although people try. You know, and and yeah. and and I think like and and I guess like if you compare that with the reactions of institutions back during the Black Death, was it similar? Like, did you have the church painting a happy face on it? Or did you have uh, monarchs and other governments trying to maintain this sort of semblance of control? Or Well, actually, I think that's a really good comparison because the church, the papacy anyway, in Avignon was so ineffective. They were under the thumb of the uh, secular French rulers and they were completely ineffective. And you have people like Catherine of Siena, you know, begging the papacy to step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. And they don't. I mean, they can't. They just, they're too weak. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, another uh, sort of, that's the reason that people started to lose faith in their Christian religion. Because your pious, pious neighbor who prayed all the time and gave all of his money to the church dies. Mm-hmm. And the guy next door who goes around, you know, murdering people for money lives. Made people confused. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to see more of that as this thing goes on um, here in this present day. Um, obviously, like now too, you have people acting. I will say moderately crazy. So, for example, today was the first day that we could buy toilet paper. Again, and that was only because the wholesale stores were rationing it. So you could only buy one mm-hmm. package of toilet. Now, one package of toilet paper, mind you, has, I think, like like 40 rolls in it. And so you were mm-hmm. restricted to just buying 40 rolls now. Um, now, of course, if the plague gets so bad that you need a cellar full of toilet paper, then your water is probably going to run out first. But that is a story for another day. Now, I hope you are enjoying today's conversation with Louisa Woodville, and I wanted to take a quick break to enlist your help. Right now, 
there is a really bad disease keeping a lot of us indoors. And up until mid-March, choosing to believe the medical and scientific community on the peril this posed was a partisan act in the United States. Now, this is due to the fact that the American political dialogue has become so poisoned and so tribal that we'll ignore the headlights coming towards us until the person who we voted for tells us to move. And this is 100% a byproduct of the way we conduct elections in the United States. My goal in doing this is to change that, and to do it, I need your help. Right now, while you're sitting there waiting for me to stop talking so the rest of the episode can continue, I want you to click on your device and share YDHTY. It's easy to do and only takes a second. We need more people like you in the conversation if things are going to change. Second, if you're interested in learning a little more about the electoral system in the United States and why it's geared towards divisiveness and tribalism, I would strongly encourage you to visit ydhty.com for more information. That is why is in you, D is in don't, H is in have, you can figure out the rest.com. And with that out of the way, let's cheer ourselves up with some more conversation about the plague. How did people react, like, other than, obviously, other than their declining faith in the Catholic Church, what were some of the other ways they reacted, or what were some of the other responses people had as they saw this thing kind of grow? And Well, one of my favorite, I think you could call it a reaction, mm-hmm. to the Black Death is Boccaccio's Decameron. And Boccaccio, as you remember, is that wonderful Florentine, one of the famous Florentine authors. Mm-hmm. And in about 1353, he wrote this tale and you have uh, these I don't know I can't remember the exact number but like 14 um, Florentines leaving Florence and going up into the hills where they know it's safe mm-hmm. and they tell stories and if you read the Decameron the stories are very funny and very entertaining and that's what these people did in the hills mm-hmm. and these stories mock lust and they mock the clergy. And the way they mock lust, it's not like, oh, it's bad. It's, they'll find some, some guy is caught with another man's wife and he has to try to hide in a barrel. That kind of funny, uh, funny stories. Mm-hmm. What, they, what it does reveal are these social tensions. Because you have sort of the new wealth that was made especially by the Italian merchants and the Genoese merchants in Florence and mm-hmm. elsewhere. And they, um, the social tensions are exacerbated during the Black Death because now somebody who was a farmer, like the Medici, can start accumulating wealth through what other people have had to abandon. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, was it similar to, and again, you know, thinking of, thinking of the, the sort of two economies we have going now where there are the, the benefactors of globalization and the, the folks who've sort of lost out because of it. Was the commercial revolution similar in a way where you had this huge amount of wealth in the commercial hubs where maybe the farming community was left behind? And then after the onset of this, that power structure, that dynamic started to change. Is that, am I going a little too far there or am I, am I on the right track here? No, you're on the right track. 
I also think in this period of time in the 14th century, when there was not a famine, life was okay. I mean, the mm-hmm. serfs had plenty to eat. They had work. They they were fine. When there was a famine, that's when things would get really, really terrible. And then, of course, the Black Death. But famines don't restructure social mobility to the extent that the Black Death did. Mm-hmm. And it, if you if you look at what was happening during the 14th century, you have these sort of mercantile ethics that start to take hold and replace the aristocratic ones. Aristocrats do not work. Aristocrats live off the land. And you can even see that change in, in popular programs like these, these programs on the Tudor court, Henry VIII. All of a sudden you start seeing uh, the aristocrats, they still have their big estates, but now they start serving the king in almost an administrative way. Mm. So that's, that's all. That was a change that I believe the Black Death helped move along. It was already happening, but it, it kind of pushed it more. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what, what you're saying here then is that kind of the disruption that was created by this kind of cleared out some of the old staid beliefs or, or behaviors of the aristocracy and maybe started to accelerate the the transformation of society to more of like a mercantile approach to things then. Am I right? Or Well, yeah, the mercantile approach was already sort of taking hold. Like for example, mm-hmm. Arabic numerals were being used because it made that made a lot easier. Um, but sometimes I think about the black death and I realize I just really can't imagine it. I mean, half the population mm-hmm. was gone and it, it, it didn't matter whether you were a bishop a king or a priest or a serf, you're, it was, everybody died. So uh, to me, the biggest, uh, the biggest takeaway from this was the social mobility that it afforded Mm -hmm. and also how that devotion, piety and loyalty, the church uh, lost its hold because the church could not provide any protection. Mm-hmm. And people's faith was completely shaken. There's this uh, author who wrote a book on Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved his quote about what happened during this period of time. And he writes, Surging intellectual energy, damned for a millennium in ecclesiastical reservoirs, began to flow through the pestilence-inspired breath. That idea of surging intellectual energy. And I think about people like Boccaccio and um, you have other amazing writers like Petrarch that he thrived during this period of time. Dante was a little bit before this this period. All these, it's it's not your Monty Python (laughs) depiction. It's these people that really have a lot to do and a lot to say. Yeah. You know, it's funny, this is going to sound trite, but when you were telling me about Boccaccio and even I think of, you know, Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, which, you know, came a little later, um, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost thinking in my mind of how you have right now, all these people hold up in their homes in different parts of the country, 
watching Netflix and how things like like the Tiger King have all of a sudden become overnight successes because people are just trapped in with nothing to do. It almost sounds like people ran to the hills and that was kind of like the Netflix in, of the 1300s in a way, which was going up into the hills and telling stories because this was the only place where it was safe. Yes. And I, I'm not one to really watch a lot of TV or uh, Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep thinking, boy, if people, instead of watching Netflix, if they, if they did what you're doing or they wrote stories about what, what their life is like or, or something funny that happened, I, I hope they're doing that too in addition to watching Netflix because people say, oh, I, I'm, I'm so I'm so bored. I have to. I'm, I'm on season four of something. Mm. Wow! Then write. Pick up a pen and and be like Boccaccio and write your story. Yeah, you know we. So we had this idea. It was actually my wife's idea. I'm not even going to say we. You know, my wife had this idea that she was going to have the kids journal every day. Yes. Yes. That's what my husband and I are doing. Exactly. That's, that's great. The only thing, the only problem for us is that the journal was like, Teddy ate half of my grilled cheese and Johnny yeah. was, you know, it's like, it's, it's, they're, they're just, if, if we become the sole record of what happened during the pandemic of 2020, uh, they're just going to think that everybody just was trapped in, in a house with their siblings fighting basically, because that's pretty much what the journal says. But the exercise is good, certainly. And, and I think it's, I think, you know, I think at this point in time, like it's important for us all to kind of pause for a second and say, this isn't just like a, a little speed bump for society. You know, this is, this is something that's going to have enormous changes or enor- an enormous impact, I think, culturally. Um, yeah. And I think that's what I'm wondering too. I mean, I think some of this enormous impact is going to be really positive. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you, you have, you say four children? Uh, four and one foster kid. So five total in the house. Okay. So five children and you are probably going to find out some things about them that their teachers knew, but you didn't. Yeah. Your life will be enhanced by Uh, getting to know them on a whole different level. That you are, you are 100% correct. My, you know, my wife and I actually talk about how in a lot of ways, and, and granted, we're two weeks into this. I think the the damage, both uh, economically and in terms of life, is is yet to come. But the the one thing that we've really appreciated is just the ability to pause and the ability to actually, you know, not have to rush off somewhere or not have to rush one kid off to a soccer game and another kid to some other class. It's we're all in the house. We're all together. We're the only people we can associate with. And, uh, and it's been really nice. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, and, and then think how different your life is from your friend who has an apartment of 800 square feet in Boston. Yeah, and it's stuck there. Yeah, it's probably so lonely because he doesn't really know his neighbors, and he doesn't really want to know his neighbors. And yeah, so it's a lot of different different scenarios here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 kind of one of the one of the interesting parallels is you talk about kind of the price of property in or the value of property in in the period of the Black Death. My big question here is, 
you know, if you look at like a place like New York City, for example, where people have sacrificed square footage for location, is that is that is that math going to change? Are people's calculations going to change? And maybe is a 400 square foot apartment where you're on top of everybody else for the sake of being that much closer to, uh, you know, that much closer to the village, for example, is that going to be valuable now in a world where, uh, where this type of thing is probably going to be more present in the future? Uh, I wonder also about that because some of the primary documentation that we read about the Black Death will say people forget and they go right back to their, their whatever they abandoned before when the going gets good again. And I wonder how much we'll remember. And I, I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a blank plate on this. Um, but it's, you know, certainly with, uh, what I, what I really enjoy seeing after the black death is how the social fabric changed. That to me is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, people started to be pious again, though. I mean, there's, I guess maybe, some people never left it, um, but you look at the Medici again, and you find a, I don't call it a false piety. I call it a, a piety that serves your agenda. Because in the, about the 1420s, when they, the papacy got very divided because they moved back to Rome, then they wanted to, the French protested and they kept a pope in Avignon and there were two and three popes at a time. But anyway, the Medici supported a given pope. Mm. And this guy was just like a pirate. I mean, everybody knew he was not papal material. But the Medici just poured money to get him elected. So you have all that kind of hidden agenda. Yeah. That is happening. And for reference to the Medici were, were this group of traders in, in Venice, correct? No, oh, the Medici were in Florence, and Florence. they came okay. out of the Mugello, which is an area outside of Florence, during the Black Death. They moved to Florence, and they start dyeing fabrics. And from dyeing fabrics, they take that profit, and they start the Medici Bank. Got it. And through the bank, they become the ruling family of the Florentine state. So we're not just talking the little city of Florence. We're talking like a big, huge area that at one point is stronger than the papal territory to the south. Yeah, I read I read Machiavelli, and so I remember learning a little bit about the Medici, but I don't know yeah. much. Didn't know much about their history beyond that. Well, I taught art history, and so when it came time to t teach the, the, you know, to talk about the Medici, I would show this. PBS movie mm -hmm. and it was so enthralling because it was really accurate and the whole point for me of the Medici since I'm an art historian is all the artists that they supported so they used their all their money to uh, make Florence a culturally vibrant city that it became during the Renaissance uh, anyway fascinating to see how even the art that they commission further their uh, their agenda of securing their political power and I think we see now in politics leaders that fear their power is slipping and they are so desperate to do anything they can to hold on to it. They come up with all this wacky ideas that 
aren't going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think we're we're coming up on a we're coming up on a day of reckoning for what I guess we'd call kind of the post-truth era, where you kind of invent facts or, or retrofit facts to meet your partisan needs. And I think what's going on is the, the virus doesn't care how you vote. The virus doesn't care who your campaign donors are. And the math of that virus will do its work regardless of, of, of what you say. And in a lot of ways, and this is going to sound terrible, Louisa, but in a lot of ways, I hope this is the disaster. I hope this is the one because it's going to come eventually. And the one thing about this is we know what it is. We know how to hide from it. And to be honest, it spares kids. You know, it is at the very oh, least, yeah. at the very least, it spares the children. So, yeah. so I, I, you know, I, I hope that this is the wake up call and this is the one that, um, this is the one that, that at least gets us to listen to people who've, whose, whose knowledge of medicine comes from years of study as opposed to, you know, 10 minutes on the toilet, uh, you know, on their phone, which tends to be kind of the, the substitute for intelligent, uh, conversation now. Um, yes, also, yes, exactly right. I mean, it gives people a chance to kind of reevaluate maybe who should I listen to when the going gets really, really tough. Do I listen to the guy who got his PhD in pestilence control or do I, you know, yeah. listen to someone who doesn't read? Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, there's, there's one interesting thing and I'll ask for you to clarify this, which is, you know, we talk about all the changes that go on during the, during the, the black death. Um, but the interesting thing is that, you know, there, there are some, there are some changes. It seems economically, politically, but, you know, it also seems like from a behavior standpoint, it seems like the life kind of goes back to normal in a way, because I even, I even think about the, uh, yeah, I, I'm just thinking about the Canterbury Tales, which is obviously the story of a pilgrimage, uh, written right at the tail end of this, uh, right at the tail end of this, this pandemic. And so it seems yeah. like, it, it seems like whatever lessons were learned during the Black Death kind of disappear after a couple decades but i'll ask for your clarification on that because i'm i'm obviously not the historian out of the two of us well i i read chaucer through the lens of boccaccio because boccaccio's stories i i were so funny and entertaining and as are chaucer's so i I think Mm -hmm. they kind of parallel each other Mm -hmm. and the idea that with chaucer these these are pilgrims walking on a pilgrimage they they don't act very religious all the time. I mean, they, they, they like the idea of going on a trip too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it's, his is different because they get to travel. They get to, they're walking. And unlike Boccaccio's who are kind of hiding out. Um, the other thing that struck me about Boccaccio though, is that these were, uh, the Florentines who escaped and went up into the hills had money. And my husband and I are out in the middle of the country in Virginia. Mm -hmm. We also have a house in D.C. So we are like that. Also, there's so many people who don't have a house out in the country Mm -hmm. where they can escape to. And and so that's that's the other thing is even though it the the plague or this coronavirus can if it finds you, 
attacks everybody the same, it, it can't find you if you can if you can run to your big house, you know, wherever it is in mm-hmm. in Dutchess County, New York, or or you know, here in Fauquier County, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So that's that. I that seems true also with the plague in the 14th century. Yeah, you had you had well, like for example, this was a later a later plague. Elizabeth I uh, immediately left for Windsor Castle when the plague hit, because Windsor Castle at that point was really out in the country. So that's that was how these medieval and Renaissance people dealt with the plague. Yeah. Try to outrun it if you can. Yeah. 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 And, and do you, you know, one, one other thing too, that I, I want to make sure we, we touch on is the end of it. Cause when that plague lifts too, and you kind of alluded to this with the, with the Medici and with their funding of art, but there's almost a boom in a way. I mean, it's, it really, well, I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of a dumb thing to say because it's the Renaissance effectively is what happens, right? Well, it's the social, well, it's also that social mobility mm-hmm. I think that let that, that gets the, the ambitious and the hungry able to realize their ambitions like the Medici. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this black death is, as you know, it reoccurred again and again, much less so though. I mean, nothing, it didn't have the impact that it had when it originally struck. Mm-hmm. And I am waiting to hear from uh, scientists about how this, virus that we are seeing might transmute itself Mm -hmm. wouldn't you think that if it goes from person to person to person to person it would lose some of its strength but it doesn't seem to be no the other yeah yeah it's it's a really weird one because you know from a and again i'm going to play armchair epidemiologist for a bit because everybody on facebook seems to want to so um but it seems to me that if you look at kind of the nature of the way disease spreads, you know, it needs new hosts and it needs, uh, it needs new hosts. And, and to do that, it needs, you know, a lot of people effectively. Um, and if you look at, again, you compare the Black Death where disease would move rather slowly from place to place. Um, you didn't have people hopping on airplanes and, um, and you, you didn't have the same kind of rapid worldwide uh, transportation you have now. Um, so in a lot of ways, the, the Black Death kind of had to take its time getting from place to place. Um, this one is an interesting one where I think you, um, where the incubation period is so long, so you have the opportunity to infect a lot of people before you get sick. And if you have a, a, an environment like ours where you have these dense clusters of people packed together, um, in those dense clusters, you tend to have the, the highest proportion of travelers. You know? So for example, if you're in New York City, you're in Boston, you're in Washington, D.C., Seattle, um, those, those are generally going to be populations that also travel more across the world, yeah. you know, and it's just like, it's, it's a very, the, the interesting thing. And I think the, the thing that's the parallel that's tough to generate is, is that at the end of the black death, people still didn't know what caused it. You know, they still, there was no virology. There was no, there was no, they, they never, they never knew much, much about what it was other than it killed people. Um, yeah. 
Um, you know, now, now the, the interesting thing is, you know, obviously there are the cultural changes that will no doubt take place, but there's also the, the, you know, to kind of get to your point about how institutions fundamentally changed back then. Um, we, we now as a, as a, as a, community as a global community you have to understand again that a and this is something i've said in in earlier episodes that we live in a world where the where where food regulation where public health regulations on the local level influence the health of the entire world you know because ultimately yeah. it is you know they trace the coronavirus back to the wet markets in in Wuhan, and it is the 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 lack of regulation of those markets that impacts everybody now, and yeah. how that plays out. I mean, there aren't many, <laughs> there aren't a lot of happy stories in history that indicate how this plays out. You know, there aren't there aren't a well, lot of it. Yeah, and also. When I was in school, and I'm 66 years old, mm -hmm. when I did not ever hear about how disease felled the Native Americans, mm -hmm. I went to, I remember going to an exhibition, and it was in something like, I don't know, um, 1992 or something mm -hmm. at the Smithsonian. And that tracked the devastation of the disease that eradicated a huge percentage of a Native American population. Mm -hmm. I, that was news to me. So again, it's like the people who write history. Because as it was happening, these conquerors, these European conquerors were mm -hmm. thinking, oh good, this makes our life a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Instead of recording it as the most horrible, terrible thing has happened there's a population that's dying and we don't, we can't stop it. We don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've never read anything, any primary documentation like that. Yeah. Do you think, I, I think this is a, this is actually a good point to, to, to cap this off on. Cause I've never thought about this before. And as you're talking, uh, it, it kind of just discrystallized in my mind, which is you know, a lot of people look at history and they think of it as sort of this stayed, study of dates and events and dates and people. And, and the reality is, is that history is as much based on our modern interpretation of it as it is what happened. And it's, you know, getting back to what you mentioned about the, the volumes of, of primary sources available for the plague, you know, people time, you know, er, you know, year after year and century after century can go back to those same primary sources and reach a different conclusion based on where they are. And yes, which is, is what I love about history. It's so dynamic. Yeah. If you are a, a one of these uh, his, German historians of the 19th century mm -hmm. and you are reading about um, the devastation of, oh, I don't know, say, Say you read about how the Christians blamed Jews mm -hmm. and massacred them during the Black Plague. It's going to be, you're going to read it in a different way than an historian, a German historian in the year 1943, mm -hmm. than you are from a historian in 2014. I mean, that same fact is 
interpreted in such different ways. Mm-hmm. It's it, which is why I love history because we're constantly revisiting it and seeing exactly what this meant. Yeah, yeah. People people stay the same, and the situation cha- the situation changes, or, yeah. or or maybe to put it a better way, these situations are, are aren't new, as evidenced by the fact that we are talking about something that happened almost roughly 700 years ago to understand yeah. what's going to happen now. Right. And, and I look at the black death and think of terrible, terrible things happen. I get that. Also, it, there were some really positive changes and I'm looking forward to seeing what those are also. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that the plague was the result of expanded trade with Asia, and there are some other parallels I believe have yet to fully come to fruition. Now, just like the papacy and the aristocracy, whose influence was waning prior to the Black Death with the Commercial Revolution, saw this process accelerated as more and more people succumbed to the disease, we're seeing a test of our institutions today, and not all of them are going to come out as winners. Now, while the current administration has made globalization, or rather retreat from it, one of the centerpieces of its policies, we're at the point now where global cooperation is going to be needed if we're going to tackle the next pandemic, which definitely will occur. Now, what's more, the rise of the anti-science movement is being tested as people now have to choose between their partisan identity and what people who actually studied medicine have to say. And it seems that more people are turning to the science, but I wouldn't cut anti-science out more because it's way harder to go through seven years of schooling than it is to do 15 minutes of research on the toilet. And I believe most people are going to choose to become an expert in the latter. Now, we started this year discussing the national debt and that was before we added $2 trillion in stimulus to it. So we're going to revisit the subject next week with one of our guests from January. Tara Sinclair of George Washington University is going to come on to talk about the current stimulus, its potential effects, and how economic policy needs to adapt to address future crises like the one we're in. Spoiler alert, we don't discuss implementing an emergency haircut system, so you're still on your own there. Oh, well. You can find a write-up of today's episode and some additional resources to whet your bored and curious mind on YDHTY.com. As always, theme music, courtesy of Tack. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next.